Welcome to another edition of Wind and Waves Surf Talk. We are extremely excited to have uh, graphic designer and surfer David Carson in the shop today to talk about his life as a surfer and graphic designer. David grew up in Cocoa Beach, Florida, where he first started riding waves and eventually became a professional surfer. And uh, he shares his experiences both competing and judging contests uh, in the late 1970s and 80s. As his professional surfing career started to wind down, uh, David became intently interested in his second passion, which is obviously graphic design. And the rest is really history as David then becomes one of the most famous designers in the world. Apple named him as one of the most influential designers of our lifetime through the work he did at places like Transworld Skateboarding, Surfer Magazine, Beach Culture, Ray Gun, and so on. So in this interview, uh, we really hit the ground running, um, realizing that the conversation was already well underway before we could be bothered with introductions and other pleasantries. Kevin and David are just are right in the middle of a discussion about a controversial call during the WSL Trestles event um, when Gabriel Mendina lost to local favorite Tanner Gaduskis. So that's where we dive in, but um, before long we're able to pedal back and get into the beginnings of David's surf career and his ultimate passion for graphic design. So I hope you enjoy the show as always, and be sure to check us out at windandwaves.com for all your surf apparel and gear. Pointing out to you, I'm surprised. Absolutely. There's two. Ooh, really? With Joe Chappelle, or? Uh, one was from Rosie. Oh, Rosie. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm basing it on the other one. I'll take it there. Two, right? I should post it somewhere. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, you can send it right into them, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, they must know you, too, right? I mean, they, they're like. Well, I'm sure they do. I, you know, I. I you post pretty actively? I wouldn't say active, but sporadically when they get worked up like that, judging fiasco. Yeah, that, that was a huge controversy with the WSL, and I mean, I think Mick was right on with that. I mean, it's Who was? Mick Fanning. Oh, I don't know if I read his piece on it, but I mean, the, the reaction to that particular heat, I, I think that was dead wrong, what they did and what happened, and, and it's, it's pretty clear what happened, well, I think, that they realized that um, they knew it was close, they know what the scores are, they know what's needed to advance, and after that wave of, of, of Gabriella's, that everybody on their own staff said, oh, they got it, that's it, turned it around like that, that's what Lisa, you know, at least in mind, well, the best wave we've seen all day, but every one of them said that. Um, and then it wasn't. <laughs> there was a time gap in there where the, from the time when they, before they posted it, and clearly, what they were doing in there was <clears throat> the judges were going, well, what's he need to advance? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I think the local underdog guys actually been surfing better. So if we go above this, he won't win. And I said, well, what does that have to come in at? And I'll ask him, okay, there. And, oh, local guy wins. So it was, it was clearly, there was this committee decision that, that, well, as we just sit here casually and watch the heat, it seems like, Tanner is ripping one. Yeah. You know, but wait a minute. If we give that last ride what it should get, he won't win it. And I think he's been ripping. <laughs> you know, so, right. Well, yeah. so come in at, a, at this and he won't go forward. I'm, I'm positive that's what happened. 
And I think if it wasn't at Trestles, it wouldn't be that cut and clear because Trestles is such a... It's that wave where it kind of brings out everybody's flaws. And yeah. so, you know, if it's at Chopu, it's like, okay, he clearly got a 10 on that wave. He's standing up in a huge barrel. Yeah. But at Trestles, you can kind of narrow it down to these turns and, you know what I mean? It's... Yeah, no, I think that was... Uh, it was horrible. It was scared it was wrong. Yeah. Just, to say, you know, just a blatant... Uh, and then Kelly and some of the other people try to say, well, there's always close decisions, and there's always people that complain, and that's just part of it. Yeah, that's true. But but tell me the last time half the surfing world complained, and your own commentators. People on tour. Yeah, people on tour. I mean, I can't remember a time like that. I can't, I can't remember that. So yeah. it's not, you can't just lump it into this other thing of, well, there's always a subjective, there'll always be close heats. And no, that was the first time I can remember <laughs> that. that Two tour members, you know. Well, they could be fine. Fifty thousand dollars for that. And uh, Alex Rivero, they all commented, you know. Yeah, but, but well, that's another issue. I think Kelly was was you know he's part owner, he's a company man, and yes. and so his was well, could have gone either way. They're close heats. What really? Yeah. <laughs> well, those other guys weren't saying it was a close heat. Could have gone either way, but. So it was really wise of the WSL how they played it. You know, they still to this day haven't responded. Yeah. What did they do? They let Kelly respond. Say, well, could have gone either way. What's the big deal? It's like, oh, yeah, because there's a couple to issues there right? that he talks about. Yeah, and I, I mean, Kelly's amazing. I'm not against that, but, but the way that was handled. That so that was their way. Well, let Kelly make a statement, and it'll kind of go away. And. Uh, so he did. He said, "Yeah, it's close. Could have gone either way." But then he went into this rant about, you know, there's so much more important things in life than who wins a heat. I mean, I can't believe all the stuff that's going on and blah blah blah. And I thought, wait a minute, let's talk perspective here. Your that observation's coming from a mid middle aged guy on tour for twenty whatever years, thirty years. But let's let's ask the twenty two year old. Kelly Slater, how you would feel about that. Exactly. You know, it's all perspective, because those guys, it is the most important thing in the world, and it's a big deal. And yeah, when you're 44, probably one particular heat loses, a, you really, you know, you've had so many more whatever life experiences. It's a matter of perspective. I mean, some it people is, have done is. a lot of heats. Yeah. Kelly's got, I mean, how many yeah. of these heats has that guy won and lost, and then Talk about these other guys with these key heats, you know, key heats yeah. with. You know, I remember one time when you I need was, to win uh, in advance. Actually, it would have been what I was going to say was Patrick Simon, but when I was starting surfing, and, and I remember like, I don't know if I got a mention or I won a contest or got a trophy or something, and I was showing my dad, well, check this out, that's very good. Uh, and his, his observation was just kind of, oh, that's must have been a trophy or something. He said, that's great, you take that and a couple dollars and probably get a beer. <laughs> Not <the> coffee, <laughs> but it was perspective. You know, at, at, at later age, the idea that you won a surf trophy, not so important. But, uh, anyway, so yeah. this dad is over and things will keep going. And I think, everyone, but they'll learn from it, you know. And what's kind of neat is, they, I don't know if they I, th- I would say some people they like getting a reaction. You know, people don't want to do stuff like this and not get a reaction. Getting a reaction shows that people care, they're passionate, and you have viewers, or people who are tuned in and watching and paying attention to stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you do this stuff, in marketing, you do this stuff to get a reaction. Yeah. 
right? Well, that's we were talking earlier about coming out with some fancy line to get attention and yeah. get some press, and, and then and it's hard. It's one of those in. sports that you know, like it's judged. It's you know, it's for people's perspective on how you're surfing. And I mean, like think about Jeremy Flores last year when he got fined for almost punching out a judge. You know, it's it, it's hard. It's it's one of those. It's hard to grasp. It's like. You're you're out there, and maybe you feel like you're surfing the best you've ever surfed, but you're not getting judged the way you know you're surfing. And it's hard. Yeah, it's just this one was just so blatant. There's the others. <clears throat> I mean, I can think back to weird close decisions. You know, you don't you you know surfers that resignates and, and stings or whatever. But but this one that has so many other people yes. jump in, including their own people. And, no, no way! And they should just come out and admit it. Okay, yeah. we screwed up. We are human. We're going to try to learn from this and move on. But no, they, they admit nothing. Nothing. No mistake. No mistake. And they get Kelly to come in and say, yeah, I could have gone either way. Close heat. What's the big deal? To help diffuse things. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That was their response. But it's one thing to make a mistake and say, okay, subjectively, we saw some things differently than what actually happened. But it's different if you're actually, if you, if they they have, if, if the judges are have scratch pads up there and they're doing the math, trying to figure out what the outcome would be based on their scores, that's just too manipulative and not really doing the job of saying, what did this surfer score on this ride on this wave, right? And that's where things get dicey. And and if and if the viewers or anybody loses faith in how they're judging up there, that that's catastrophic. Yeah, and I, I read an interview with the head judge or somebody that was at some point, and they say, yeah, at the end of the heat, you know, we really want to make sure that the whoever we thought surfed the best wins the heat. And so we do talk a little bit about let's make, you know, yeah, I think he said, let's make sure. Right. That, you know, who, let's, we want to check to see if the guy that we felt surfing the best is winning. And he was he kind of danced around it, but it was very clear that that's what they do. And, they all sit there and go, God, that guy, he's just ripping. And, and so he goes, wait a minute, if he gets this, he doesn't win the heat. Well, let's look at that. Yeah. And that's where it gets really screwy. Mm-hmm. That's what happened in that case. Yeah. They absolutely realize. So it's like point point zero 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 three, mm-hmm. just under what he would have needed to take just the Just under, yeah. Yeah, and that's, there's no way that's just random. Anyway, so it's, but I... I yeah, I just think it's wrong. People say, well, it's subjective, it's surfing. You're always going to have disgruntled losers and close heats. It's just part of it. Well, yeah, it is, but not at that level. Not at that level. Anyway, <laughs> I was thinking about it because I was getting so worked up about it. I was like, saying, why do I get so worked up about this? Because <laughs> <laughs> you're passionate. Because <laughs> you care, you know? And that's good. That's a win for the WSL, honestly. If they get people on the message boards commenting on this stuff, that's got to be a win. If they did all this stuff and got just crickets with no response, they would have to wonder yeah. if they're really doing their job, getting the viewers, or getting enough activity going on. When, um, a couple years ago, it was a long time, actually, it was probably seven years ago, I was judging the Scion Pro um, at Second Beach in Rhode Island, and I remember it was like towards the end of the event, and um, Sam Boardman who Russell, you have his picture up in, in the spot, um, getting barreled at uh, in York, Maine. But um, he got this sick, too. And I remember, like, the judge next to me, we both kind of were like, 
he pulled into a barrel and pulled like, whoa. And I remember like the other people involved were like, hey guys, you can't, you know, calm down. <laughs> we both, and we gave him a big score, but like they didn't want us oh, yeah. talking to each other. But, like, I mean, for the longest um, time, you know, Shapers judged their own writers and, yeah. you know, I, I, after I competed in the it was called Stubby's Grow for a number of years. I later judged Stubby's Grow, and uh, one of the other judges was Rusty Bracendorfer, and that uh, he was we judged a final where <laughs> his main team writer David Parmenter uh, yeah. was in the final, and I think it was it would have just been a two-man final. <laughs> and as right before the heat's ending. Rusty's climbing down the, the scaffolding to go congratulate him as he's coming out of the water. They haven't even announced the scores yet. I I, I, I see, I'm not sure that looks really good. <laughs> down the scaffolding to the water's edge to congratulate your team rider. But, but, yeah, they, so they at least got away from that. But here's yeah. a guy, his number one team rider, he's judging should he win this final or not. And it's close. Which way are you going to go? Just yeah. to have him in the final. It's like... Um, <laughs> Uh, Jordy said he just admitted it. Nothing to admit. He said, "Yeah, I think um, claiming is great. You know, judges are human. I'm sure it helps, and I think it does. You know, if if the top guy in the world goes, hmm, maybe that was a little better than I thought. You know, or I guess that was good. Just right. like when, Did you you, see just like when you bring your own cheering cheering squad to the beach, they're human. They hear yeah. that. You know. And, uh, so I thought, and I think I even posted about it on the Gabriel thing, which is just mind-boggling in a way, but at the end of his wave, he does look back at the judges, <laughs> and I said, so that's what did it, that really pissed them off. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't, they collectively watched the heat, decided Tanner was kind of ripping the underdog, and he should be winning, but, oh, he's not? Oh, okay, that, then we need to keep this, and you almost here we are, and I guess like you're, to your case, we're still talking about it, or other people will, but. No, it's good. It's a win. I mean, from my perspective, it's yeah. like, this, is, this is good. It's I good to get not, people engaged in this I'm stuff. I'm sure they see it like that. I, I agree with you completely. But it will help correct it, that's for sure. They're getting, they're getting feedback. And the yeah. feedback is going to help them to sort of shape how things are going to work from this yeah. point forward. Yeah, there have been some interesting ones about, like, compared to the Olympics or something, where you always know where the judge is from. And a couple right. of you know, these guys are total secrecy, and they had a quick flash of where they were the other day. I noticed at least one of them was in a hoodie. Really? <laughs> oh, they're really hiding. <laughs> but, but um, you know, when they sports, they say where are the judges from, yeah. and they give you some other information. Yeah. They got an act from the Russian you know, judge. There's three like from Australia sitting on that um, panel, and, you know, on some of the websites. And, the most anti-Brazilian people in the world are definitely the Australians that are, that are coming in. Huh. So, is that, was that a factor? I don't know, but it doesn't uh, look good. No, it doesn't look good. You've got to kind of look into, too, that Tanner's from San Clemente, where the contest went on, and if you look at the beach that day, right. like, how many people were there supporting him, and then you kind of look at, like, the tour in general, and you say, okay, well, um, why is Brazil still, Rio still a spot on tour? Well, it's because the entire nation of Brazil shows up. Yeah, it's a crummy wave, but it gets so many people involved. Oh, yeah. So yeah. then you look at what just happened, and you're like, well, is the tour kind of going, okay, Tanner, like, you're the home homebody of San Clemente, and we're all here to build you on. Like, 
did they push well, it? Well, I don't way? think it was it was maybe that deliberate, and I don't believe it was a conspiracy. But I think the effect of, of all that, you know, like you crowds going crazy, underdog. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it, it had had some effect, and apparently it did. Yeah. Huge effect. How did you how did how did you um, get introduced to being a judge? When you said you used to judge for contests, how did that come? Well, first of all, I'm curious. How long? How many years did you compete? And how old? You know, like, like around rough ages. How old? Well, you I started competing? competing actually when I first learned to surf in Florida. Um, yeah. I was longboards. It slowly kind of got back in, but I was competing in, in, as a pro in the late mid-late 70s, which was the absolute worst time to be a competitor. It was a total soulful era. All the wetsuits yeah. were black. People hated competitions. That's why they didn't clear the water when we showed up. <laughs> it, was a, it was a weird time. You know, purpose, my purpose was in that photo. It was uh, way ahead of his time in a way that he wore these crazy hats and crazy wetsuits and would get a ton of crap about it. But he got a lot of press, too. But he was the only one and everybody else was black, black wetsuits, contests are uncool, so that's where I kind of started. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little challenging. I, I, you know, for some reason with all this stuff, I was thinking about one of my early contests would have been either in high school or just out, and I entered this contest in Huntington Beach, and I did uh, did pretty well the first time, I'd done pretty well in a, in a California contest, and um, I had made the final by beating my purpose. I was like, wow, here's this unknown little kid who just got out of Florida. He beats purpose, who was the guy of the moment. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I beat him in the semifinals, which meant I went to the final and he didn't. And the event organizers got a hold of me and said, look, you know, um, you know, Mike won this event last year, and we got all these people here. And would, would you be okay if we let him surf the final as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, it's all new to me. And I'm, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, whatever you guys say, yeah, kind of thing. But now you have to beat him again. So yeah, and plus the other five people. In the right. Team. I mean, there was yeah. only five jerseys. There were only five trophies. Um, blah blah blah. So I like, well, yeah, okay, I guess, yeah. So he, he's in the final. There's six people instead of five. I find another jersey, five trophies. He ends up winning the contest. I guess six. No. No. That's criminal. Yeah. Yeah. Was so, no, that's, that was so wrong. <laughs> but, uh, but when you sort of took that break from competing, and then and then you competed in your first event in California, what? What sort of motivated you to get back into surfing competitively? Do you remember? No, no. Somebody asked you? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, yeah, no, there wasn't any one point. I think when I started learning to surf at Cocoa Beach, um, surfing was so big, and they were just following anything that was happening in California. In California, they seemed to have surf contests, so Cocoa Beach got really big. They still have a, a couple of the same contests that when I was there decades ago. Um, so I think there was probably some of that, just being in this culture where competition or contests were just part of it, part of being a surfer. I mean, I think yeah. all my friends had right. the contests and this and that. So it probably wasn't that big a deal when I got back out to California. It took me a while to kind of find my group or fit in. And maybe that yeah. was part of kind of getting out of it a little bit. But then that to me was just part of surfing. I competed and 
I was, right. there's people that thrive on it, and then I was one I was always too aware that I was in a heat, being watched, dead, and right. so I never felt I did my best surfing in contests. So I think people would flourish on it, you know. Yeah. So then how did you get into judging? Well, uh, so I would have competed for quite a few years and had a uh, you know, signature model surfboard, signature model fan, endorsed wetsuits, surfboards, um, and all this stuff. And, uh, and at some point, I don't remember, like, officially stopping in a way. I, I really don't um, remember exactly how I made the transition, but at some point it was would have been Peter... PG, Peter Townend, and yeah. um, Ian Karens were running the pro contests in California the start of their whole thing. In fact, Ian still gets credit for kind of starting the, what's now the WSL. Yeah. So they, they contacted me probably because they knew. I mean, I had competed against those guys in a couple contests on the East Coast. So I was one of the few surfers um, sponsored by a skateboard company. One of my sponsors was Kryptonics Wheels. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. out to a couple contests here on the East Coast. That <laughs> uh, reminded me of another little uh, thing we're down here, probably where I wasn't more, why I wasn't more successful in contests. I was competing in uh, somewhere in mid-upper East Coast, but <clears throat> and I made made the final again. And, uh, or no, it must have been the heat right before the final. And the waves were like six inches, and I had a really nice board that actually like it shared with uh, David Glay, but he had to put his sticker over my sticker because it was one of my models. Oh, okay. <laughs> but but anyway, so I'm out, and the waves are like six inches. And but Claudie Conscience was also in this heat, and he's got the new thing, which are these soft boards that are supposed to be so great when the waves are non-existent, and. And they were horrible. They didn't work at all. They didn't do anything. They're just, they're just terrible. And so, and we're like standing there waiting for a wave and this and that. And I'm pretty much winning the heat. And about halfway through it, Claudy, my good buddy mentor, who asked me to be on the surf pier, says, "Man, I don't know about that. My board is. Would you mind if I tried to ride your board for a little bit?" <laughs> and we're all standing there, dipped into waves. And, yeah, well, sure, sure, Claudia. Okay, good. Yeah, here. Well, Claudia wins, advances. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still remember. God, if I had to work on board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are just two oddball things that I thought about maybe in the scheme of, of all this controversy and contests and discussions sure. and reading and this and that. But I mean, I had a lot of good, good results and good memories, too. <laughs> but, uh, anyway. Well, I, would, I would just say, and I, I think they're thrown around a lot, you know, best surf forever, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think that's an unknowable. I would say there's no question that Kelly Slater is the best competitive surfer of all time. No probably never be eclipsed. Really impossible to imagine them being eclipsed. No. Somebody come along and win 11. 11. Times. So that's not even debatable. But when you say the best surfer in the world ever, Who's that's your favorite? An unknowable. That's an unknowable. I don't even know if I could could uh, come up with one. In fact, I was kind of bummed. Surfer Magazine got a hold of me like five years ago or something. They were doing the top 100 or top 50 all-time surfers, and they asked me to vote on it. Okay. It's a fairly select kind of cool group to be part of, and I was just busy. Oh, okay, whatever. And then, and then I didn't do it, and then all of a sudden the issue came out. It was a really big deal. You know, here's the people that voted. Was, oh man, I should have done that. 
because I would have had some opinions for sure. But, um, you almost have to categorize them. But I don't think it's I don't think that's knowable. You know, they asked the readers of Surfer Magazine, and they said Duke Kamanamoko is the best surfer of all time, hmm. and Kelly was second. So it's just uh, it's just too subjective. What, you know, I don't I don't have anything against Kelly, but he's not the best small wave surfer in the world, that's for sure, um, right now. And Anyway, I, I don't. I don't have any beef with Kelly. <laughs> Amazing what he's done. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so, David, were you designing? Were you when you were at Surfer Magazine? Were you competing and judging and like? Did some of those time periods overlap? No, that's a that's a, a good question because it's no, they didn't overlap. And um, I often thought that if you could have gone back, pretty much any time in my upbringing, where, where growing up and all I did was surf. Um, and told me that one day you'll be art director of surfing. <laughs> I, I would have just, I mean, I talk about dream job. Are you kidding me? Wow. I mean, I would have just, uh, I, yeah, I can't even imagine have gotten news like that when I was in the thick of, of the whole, whole sport <clears throat> or whatever. So fast forward, by the time I actually was asked to be art director of surfer, um, I was a little bit over it. I was more trying to be, well, not trying to be, but just exploring this thing called graphic design. And that was a venue I had to explore that. Um, just like trying to skateboarding had been before that. And uh, no, mostly that one, trying to skateboarding. After I started trying to snowboarding. Um, and then, meanwhile, my whole design career, I did this thing, Beach Culture, and only did six issues, but it was real experimental, and computers had just come in. And, and then that, they shut that down. And I was a difficult hire for it was Steve Hawk, Tony Hawk's brother, who's the editor, new editor of Surfer, and uh, brought me on. And it was really frustrating because I didn't have the freedom I had just had with the speech culture magazine. And, you know, I wasn't, I had passed the stage of being like an older surf guy trying to stay near the sport desperately. <laughs> I was just, okay, well, yeah, that's good, that's cool. And yeah, it was cool, but. But my, my interest was going more towards graphic design and exploring that and what could I do with that and still trying to figure it all out. And so I was a little bit over it at, at the time and then I found it actually kind of restrictive and you know, that's still a nice gig that I've gotten. And, and I, I still you know, mention it. proud to have done it, but, but there was not an overlap. I wasn't competing. And, this, but was Steve first, Hawk the guy who asked you to be the director? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And he and he knew you through obviously surfing. Well, I think he probably knew me, possibly through surfing, and um, possibly more because I did Transit Skateboarding Magazine yeah. for three years. Yeah. And there was nobody bigger than his brother. Yes. Um, but it was early in his state in his whole deal. In fact, I was still teaching at Torrey Pines High School in Del Mar, California, and they gave me the yearbook my last year finally gave me the yearbook to do and, uh, <laughs> like I couldn't church I couldn't that's teach that's a collector's item at this I, point I couldn't teach surf PE because I didn't have a physical education degree so here I am I mean I was I could remember teaching and bringing in the latest copy of Surfer Magazine and they would show pictures of me at the surfer pole with my date and I think, how cool is this? So, you know, ninth grade world history students. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just up there every yeah, weekend. Um, then possibly some surfing stuff. But I remember when he got his job, um, because Steve Pesman had been there, I don't know, 
for a long time, a couple of decades probably, yeah. doing surfer. And I always thought it was very cool when, when he interviewed Steve Hawk to basically take his position over. Um, he had to go surf with them at Trestles. <laughs> and somewhat based on that, Pesman decided, okay, this, this is the guy. He's, he's reasonable. He can surf okay. <laughs> That's a good way to do it. <laughs> yeah, we talked down the water. And then, yeah, I thought that was always yeah. a pretty soulful thing. But Pesman's a classic. And, uh, um, of course, he ended up going, we all, everybody kind of laughed. Like, really? You're going to get out of a couple decades of doing a surf magazine to go do a surf magazine? <laughs> <laughs> and the very first ad I can still remember it ran in Surfer while I was there a picture of Laird cutting back on a striped board and uh, that was the announcement of this new magazine this thing called Surfer's Journal Yeah. and Surfer didn't mind because yeah like that's going to succeed a magazine for old guys yeah right good luck Steve you know sure we'll give you an ad in Surfer <laughs> <laughs> good luck with that yeah 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 good luck with it it's a conservative magazine for old guys good luck that ironically doesn't uh, have advertising or no, think back no, then. No, he totally nailed it. I had actually done this magazine called Beach Culture through Surfer Publications before okay. Surfer. Okay. And that was Steve Pesman that brought me in on that. Yeah. Uh, okay. I was in I, I did Trandall skateboarding for three years and was starting to get kind of typecast as a skateboard guy and I really wasn't. I wasn't a frustrated old skater trying to stay close to the sport. I was a graphic designer. I found this medium for a while. And, you know, it worked great for me. No schooling, skateboarding, I mean, the graphics, the whole attitude, the whole thing. And me with no formal training, it was a great place to, to learn, basically. That's kind of my schooling, channels and skateboarding. Um, but anyways, so then I, I quit the, I quit that and, uh, and took a job on the East Coast, gave up my teaching tenure. At Troy Pines, a sought after school in Del Mar, California. There's a little magazine called Musician in Gloucester, Massachusetts, responded to my hundred resumes I sent out, realizing, okay, if I, if I need to get to the next stage in my career, I can't keep going skateboarding for three, four years. And they responded, again, difficult hire, but I got a, they, they hired me as art director, went to Gloucester, Massachusetts, gave up teaching in Troy Pines High School, and quit trying skateboarding, trying snowboarding. <laughs> did it, and um, a bit of a shock, a culture shock. Yeah, Gloucester, Mass. What year was that? Do you remember? Uh, I just think that back in uh, late, mid to late eighties. Okay. In there, and um, in retrospect, it was really a good experience because all of a sudden I had a budget. I had like I had to, I could use outside illustrators, outside photographers, which Transworld we never did. Never had money. And all of a sudden, I was in a real magazine. It was owned by Billboard Publications. It was kind of a serious music magazine, and we were talking a lot about equipment and technical stuff at the time. Technical stuff. And after a year, they fired me for being too radical. It wasn't radical at all. You know, I don't show any of that stuff now. But but it did expose me to. So I done three worlds of three years of transit skateboarding, transit snowboarding, and all of a sudden, this pretty conservative, big moneyed music magazine. And so I had those two, and then all of a sudden I got, it was James Casmus, which is not necessarily a name you would remember or know, a great photographer who did a lot of stuff with the original Skateboarder magazine, and he actually contacted me while I was still back east, said, hey, you know, Hesman over at Surfer, they're talking about this, maybe this new magazine, it's called Surf Culture, 
I don't know if they had a title then, but you might want to give them a call. I don't, I don't really know where it's at. And so I immediately called Esmond. Hey, you're doing a new magazine. <laughs> and he's like, oh, oh gosh, how, how'd you hear that? And I was sort of secrecy of uh, <laughs> who told me. But then he really downplays it. Well, we're, you know, we just started talking about I don't know if there's really a market or anything. We'll even get around to it. But kind of thanks for calling and, and uh, you know, certainly... Keep your mind if, if we ever do anything like that. So with that, basically, I put everything I was doing on the East Coast, moved back to Southern California, called Pesma and said, I'm here. <laughs> he was like, what? What do you mean you're here? Well, talk about the new magazine. What? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I took it. I had read somewhere that he was a big wine connoisseur, and so I arrived at the Surfer Publications with a bottle of wine and went and had our meeting, and that led to Beach Culture Magazine. It was called Surf Culture up until we almost went to print. And Surf Culture was put out by Surfer once a year, oversized, big, thick thing, and it was just, there'd be an ad, and there'd be an article about how great your company was for every page. Oh, no, and it was called Surf Culture. And it'd become kind of an industry joke in a way, like you, you felt you had to be in it, but it was, that's exactly the formula. Your ad, and then a great article about your company. <laughs> it's like an advertorial. Yeah, yes, but a yes. full magazine of it. And that's where the thinking was, maybe we need to evolve that thing. And so that became Beach Culture Magazine. And um, I don't think it was what Pesman envisioned. I think what Pesman had envisioned was the Surfers Journal. Uh, and and so he was able to get that eventually. He kind of lost interest in Beach Culture, and they let it die after six issues. It was really poised really well for the whole street, urban culture, everything that took off shortly after they closed it down. But but that led to, to me doing Reagan, and the rest is history. <laughs> huh. Was that, was that the answer so, to your question? <laughs> yes, that was perfect. So, so I didn't realize that. And so Surfer, Surfer Publications produced Beach Culture Magazine. Yeah. Okay, and that was I that was a Pesman project. Yeah, yeah I before did. he left to do Surface Journal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. He, he left shortly thereafter. Um, he I, I had to be in the works, but it was a big deal. He was leaving Surface. He'd been there, I'm thinking, twenty years or something. Um, and yeah, and me and the editor, a guy named Neil Feynman, uh, we literally did it in the warehouse at Surfer Magazine in the back, not in the, you know, where they stack the magazines, because I always stack there going through the box, well, remember this one? <laughs> but literally the warehouse of all the old magazines, and we, they build us a little area, and uh, it happens, not even happen, like a quarter of this size, we sat there and did the Speech Culture Magazine. Wow. Un- uninterrupted, just our own little thing going back there, and that allowed it to be so great. So then when they shut it down, you know, well, there I am in the building. We, you know, maybe we should hire him for, to go to Surfer, which is what happened. And then after two years of doing Surfer, somebody called me and, you know, and said they're thinking about starting a new music magazine. They'd seen my beach culture work. Would I be interested? In and yeah, I'd be really interested. Yeah. So that became Reagan. I did the first issue of Reagan at my desk at Surfer at night after they left. Huh. <laughs> really. And so, so you stayed in California to do ray gun. Yeah. You did how many issues of ray gun did you do? Yeah, for three years. So, yeah. You know, I think it was probably monthly by then. So yeah, whatever, you know, thirty-six issues or something. But this pairing of sort of like your interest in surfing and being a surfer, and and then working in 
sort of board sports magazines like Trans World and Surfer, it was kind of coincidental in a way, right? It wasn't as if you were saying, I want to be a graphic designer and I want to work in the categories that I'm passionate about. Right. It kind of, it kind of fell was, into place. Yeah, people say, you know, doesn't your surfing influence your design? And, and I don't think it does directly. It probably some indirect effect that I was in Southern California, growing up around surf and skate culture, and then I discovered this thing called graphic design. And it probably gave me more of an attitude of whether it's experimentation or I would say my main philosophy is kind of why not? Why can't we do that? What do you mean there's a rule? Why not? Let's try it, you know, kind of thing. And had I grown up in the Midwest, I think my sensibility would have been very similar. I don't know where that comes from, but it probably would not have been as loose or whatever uh, an approach. You know, people say, oh, you're just lucky you're in the right place at the right time. And no, it doesn't matter if you're not the right person, you know. Right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a combination of, well, it sounds corny, but the, the definition of luck or good luck is when preparation meets opportunity. That's right. good luck. You know, people say, oh, I've just been in the right place. It doesn't matter if you're not the right person. You know? Right. So, so that's why Tesman took Steve West surfing. It's like at some point, mm-hmm. it would be pretty embarrassing at the last moment to hire some guy and then have someone ask, well, does he know how to surf? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I've never surfed with him. Yeah. Or have him surf like a kook. Which right. Can. So... You know, and in those was days, the final it was test. more important. You yeah, know, it was pre-internet. There were two magazines, and you know, I can still go back to the probably mid late '60s, certainly all the '70s. You know, could pick up any magazine, any issue of any surf magazine from that day, open a page, and blindly pick a, a, ca- a photo and tell you the caption. Wow! So, so for whatever, I don't think it's any great thing, but I think it's kind of curious. Like, wow, of course I know that. You know. And, and, uh, but you studied them. There were only there was surfer and surfer. There was international yeah. surfing. There were a couple others. If you got one, uh, one per month, maybe two months originally. They were by and by monthly, and that was it. That was your only information. And uh, and there weren't a ton of photos. So the few that were in there, relatively few. Well, you remembered them and you memorized so, yeah. them. And you debated them, and it was. Yeah, you think about the exposure of being photographed and having a picture of yourself, whoever you are, in the surf magazine back then, as opposed to obviously today, you know, with like all That's the digital media no, and just absolutely. how many images and how many opportunities no, it's, it's people and surfers have of being captured. But wow, you know, like really, it, particularly making the cover. I mean, making the cover of Surfer back then when there were only so many still photographs pretty, per still issue. still real, you know. Yeah thing to get, but mm-hmm. back then it was beyond that. It was, you know, I still run into people that actually as a result of that that Trestles event in that photo, I, I got, remember I, I did get one good cutback and somebody got a sequence of it and it became an ad for Infinity Surfboards and people will still reference that to me. I'll run into that. Wow. Yeah, I should remember that orange board and that cutback. From the ad. Yeah. Yeah. From now, when you were laying out the magazines, did they give you any kind of like quota of number of photos that they could actually run, or what was the limitation to? Well, it's not really. Or was numbers? Yeah, it's not really that. It's you have this many pages. Here's the stuff you have to pick from. Yeah. So these are the photos we've narrowed down. The ones we want to choose from. Right. Here's the article, and we're giving you whatever. You have a page. You have two and a half pages, or you have. 
what, whatever it is. And then you make it fit. So yeah. that's, that's kind of the fun part, not numbers. But you never thought about uh, you know, the idea of, all right, I've got three photos here of surfers, and you may or may not have known some of them, and somebody's not going to make the page. Oh. Somebody is. <laughs> I mean, there's the editing room floor that they talk about, you know, like, oh, sorry, you just, you barely missed the cut. You know, you, yeah. I almost used an image of you in this spread, but it just didn't work or didn't fit. And, and the results are totally different, like we said. You know, there's only so many issues that come out. This is pre-internet, and the decision of kind of somebody becoming instantly famous in that next issue or not it's kind of like up to the designers. And what we were talking to, about earlier, you know, some of the early surf contests where they put 12 guys in a heat at Makaha and white t-shirts with numbers on their thing, and there was no drop-in rules, so you'd see eight or nine guys together, and then somehow they would pick a winner from that, and those are the guys we still talk about, the guys who got second, you know, yeah. through no fault of their yeah. own, <laughs> yeah. have disappeared, you know, or... They have a token mention here or there, but yeah, it's, it's, it's funny when you start looking back at all that help. And that's, so I don't remember, in my case, maybe if I was in there more as a frustrated old surfer than a graphic designer, I'd be thinking, no, I like him, I don't like his board he's writing, or oh, I know that, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but no, I was like, what, what shot am I going to get the most impact from? And yeah. How can I crop it and, you know, at that time? I remember seeing an image, I can't remember where I saw it, but it was a cool shot of you in the studio, and this might have been Transworld Skateboarding, but you were laying out a spread for, I think, a Tony Hawk story. And just, okay. it was yeah. neat to just, because, you know, back then, same thing, pre-internet, you know, like, was that, a design yeah. and surfer guy who was a big fan of David Carson, you studied this, and you'd say, wow, this is his studio, and this is how he works, and it was really interesting to just see back then, yeah. before computers and, and digital layout and stuff, you had all these art pieces and you would kind of have to spread them out. You need a lot of room to work. And you would visualize, you know, he's holding, you're holding these two pieces of paper. I think one of them is like a big logo or something or a big typeset something or other and another's a photo. And you're literally, you can, oh, yeah. it's a shot from, from above and you can sort of imagine what's going through David's head trying to think yeah. about how you're going to lay out this well, piece. that and, specific so. one would have been Beach Culture Magazine, that photo ran in Rolling Stone that had come out to do this thing on this thing they were hearing about called Beach Culture, whatever, huh. whatever that is. And so now they included a photo of me. And the, 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 it makes me think about the, the structure, the way Surfer was set up. There was two stories. Upstairs was Powder Magazine, and then down below was Surfer and uh, probably Sailboarder at that, at that time. Um, but anyway, then we were in the back in the warehouse, literally the warehouse. I mean, it was the mail guy was there. It was uh, that's a whole other story about mail when I redesign surfer. Might want to get into. Um, but um, so I would finish an issue of Beach Culture, it'd be like 120 pages or something, and they're on art boards. So so I have a stack of this issue, and no good sense of how it feels as a unit in a in a way. So I would go into the main building and put all these, say there's 120 pages, so 60 art boards, because they're spreads each, out on the floor, down the hallway, and run upstairs and just huh. stare at it all. Yeah. And just look at the pacing, and do I want to move that, do I want to change it around, and then run downstairs and <laughs> run back up, and it would be on the weekend, and nobody's in there, the lights yeah. go out, and hold it down, and 
and I, I sense that, God, I wish I'd taken a picture of that. It would yeah. have been really yeah. cool, you know. But of course, you didn't have phone cameras and all that. But, but you know, just literally up there. And I mean, that, at that point, it probably would have been more about pacing. You know, when you turn a page, what do I want them to see? And what, what, how do I want to change that around? Or when I get an issue back, there's, there's a few tests I go through. One is the weight. Does it feel substantial? And then there's a smell. How does that look okay? And then there's, then there's a texture. Is that the right stock for the cover? Is it too glossy? Is it gritty? So we've got like three things right away. Like, okay, substantial. That feels pretty good. And smells good. Okay, now let's see what we did. And then I start going right. through it. And you go, oh, cool. And you go, oh, man, what was I thinking? Out of the thrill of print. It's like, once it's done, it's done. Yeah. You can't. Change well, it at that point. Uh, you know, I hate to be the just the whole retro thing, but you and then you finish an issue, and you'd have these artboards, and that was it. That yeah. was the issue. You just spent a week or two. And Beach Pillsbury might have had months because they only did six issues in two years, but that was it. That was your whole experience of creating this thing, and you're cutting out type, and you're you're taking an exacto knife and having to get a comma from somewhere and take it over and set it in here. <laughs> anyway, all this stuff. But I can remember, especially with beach culture and actually a little bit with the ray gun, like in the middle of the night having this like kind of terror thought about, oh, what if the studio burns down tonight? Oh, or, or the guy driving into the printers in the morning crashes. Yeah, I mean, that was it. You're yeah. all, you just put a lot of uh, love and energy and blood and sweat on the wall, that stuff. But, and that was the only, there was no other record of it. There yeah. was nothing backed up or there's, no cloud. there's nothing else I mean that it existed on those and you're always relieved to hear the printer got it you know yeah. okay good we will yeah. have an issue <laughs> and it's a work of art at that point it really right. is it's a, you, it's a one of those those art cores I still have a few do you? Yeah. yeah because there was tissue over them and you had write instructions and um, yeah uh, yeah I, so I worked in a tissue, tissue over it it took away all the hard edges that you would see otherwise because it was uh you know, pasted. And layered. Yeah. yeah, layered down on, on all the stuff. When I was in Santa Barbara, I worked for a digital pre-press shop, and we did a lot of newsprint stuff. So we had a big newsprint web press, and it was right around the time that SideQuest drives were the new thing, like 44 megabyte SideQuest drives. And we had some people who had sort of adopted Cork Express, and they laid out their whole magazine in Cork, brought it in, on a SideQuest disc, and we would print right to film. But then we still had, we but then, but that was just happening. So we still had a lot of customers. So we did a lot of printing yeah. work. We had a lot of customers who did that. They brought in their artboards, and you know we had a room oh, with, a, with like a light table that was at forty-five degrees, and we would lay out their so artboards. Saw, yeah. Yeah, and I shot the camera. I would walk these artboards into a room, and there was this big glass table that would articulate like this. It would lay flat like a table and then but then you could tilt it 90 degrees towards the camera so you'd pop the glass on this on this huge bed essentially lay the artboard in there close the glass flip it over to the camera then walk through one of those little rotating doors into the back of the camera pull the camera door down put the film on and the film is the exact same size as the artboard so it's one to one and you take a picture of it and then that's when yeah. You were. That's when your worry over the artboard kind of went away. It's like yeah. we, we got it. We took a perfect picture of this thing. Now it's in, yeah. now it's filmed, yeah. and we can print it. And I always thought it was ironic that that end of the whole process drove 
what the designers had to do in a, in a certain sense. Like, I didn't um, embrace and rush over to the computers as soon as they came in. I was probably one of the last holdouts <laughs> in, in some sense. But I always thought it was ironic that it wasn't because I made a decision this is going to be better and we'll do more stuff. It came from the production and the, the, the houses, like you just described, saying, uh, we're not accepting our words anymore. Like what? <laughs> You're gonna gotta learn this this thing and that what? what? <laughs> so it wasn't driven from the creative side at all. Uh, it was the printer people which was yeah. a better term for that, um, saying, Hey, no more artboard, we're not taking them. Right. So, well, I was forced to learn this thing, <laughs> Which uh, anyway. Well it's interesting because they still have you know, like I, up at Michael's place, they have that Ispra mm-hmm. studio, you know, where yeah, they're still little, doing silk screen printing, yeah. you know. And that's, and it's, I, it's, that's it's, not, it's different. Yeah, that's not going to go away. I mean, that stuff's pretty sweet. And yeah. That's always going to be around, and we got it. And what was a new generation or group excited about it? And yeah. Really in there late at night, and mm-hmm. drinking beers and music blaring, and they're making little weird prints. And yeah. Well, and visualizing how color separation works. Yeah. You know, really seeing like the masks of each of the, each screen that you need for each color, and how that works. Yeah, and it's probably good for that. Uh, you know, that's was, transversal skateboarding was really that for me. Was uh, the schooling? I was like, wow, how could I get color out of that photo, and what color, and how do I get that photo, and you know, all these decisions. That, so there was the design end of it, but then there was all the other production end of you know, how do you do that. What was I going to say? Oh, the Surfer Magazine. Well, when I redesigned Surfer Magazine, um, uh, if it was... Oh, you're talking the mailroom guy. Yeah, I got it. Um, it's it kind of funny. I redesigned, and it was pretty tame, I would say, and it, it, I think it up to the graphic design level. Um, but when I just finished it, I got a letter from the owner of Gotcha Sportswear. It was really big right then, uh, Michael Town. Yeah, Townsend. Thompson. Michael Thompson, yeah. Sean's, Sean's cousin, brother? Sean's oh, his cousin. cousin. Okay. We ran Gotcha, and they were huge. Um, yeah. I got a little postcard from him saying, wow, congratulations. That thing is amazing. I just can't believe how they, what you've done as Surfer for that redesign issue. It's just, wait, whatever it said. It was just like, oh, that's cool. That's little, cool. It was yeah. a postcard, and I put it on my little bulletin board above my where I was working. Well, within a couple of days, they started getting hundreds, if not thousands, of absolute hate mail from huh. Surfer Magazine. No <laughs> and I'll jump ahead by saying later, I learned from Michael himself told me that's part of the reason he sent that, because he knew that was coming. Wow. <laughs> and he wanted to get in early and make his statement and, really? and this and that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was ugly, because I, I had just been... You know, Transal Skateboarding did, went from a few pages to 200 pages to amazing beach culture at Total Freedom. Go in, redesign server, and then there's just this flood of hate mail in the Steve Hawks's, Steve Hawks mailbox in the back where we all got our mail. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, at some point, they actually go down and take his mail. <laughs> oh, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was just... I was really kind of shocked, and uh, I think I think there were probably a few hate letters he didn't see that I saw first. Well, they were probably redundant, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Didn't the same thing, but yeah, that's what I, I don't know if I realized it at the time, but I realized afterwards that what a conservative group really? surfers are. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they're very 
very conservative, much more conservative than skaters and snowboarders, um, especially then, and I would say to this day, but it's pretty overall pretty conservative group. I had no idea it was such a redneck group, conservative. Uh, you know, I used to say, gee, these guys that appreciate experimentation in the water, and guys are trying something different, that doesn't translate outside of the water. You know, <laughs> so they, well, it's the same attitude, trying new things, experimenting, and they were just... And then I started thinking, well, at that time, it was you know, subscri- a lot of subscribers who probably didn't surf much anymore. Maybe they had their house and mortgage and kids and blah, 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 and wherever they were living. And once a month came in the mailbox the new Surfer magazine. And all of a sudden, it was different. And they were pissed. <laughs> 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 and, uh, so yeah, that was, it was pretty ugly. And Talk was in a weird position because I, he just brought me in. We just done one issue. I don't think he. I'm sure he didn't feel he could just like fire me and admit <laughs> all these people were right and he had been wrong. Sure. <laughs> so um, they kind of. I mean, long story short, day or I like to say long story, a little bit longer. Um, he uh, um, they they realized, or I it became obvious to everybody within two or three issues. The letter stopped. All the advertisers were trying to copy what we were doing in the editorial. It became no big deal, and it never has since. So it was really the shock of the new yeah. and a surprisingly conservative audience. And uh, but yeah, it was it was pretty ugly. <laughs> and, and people just just instinctive resistant to yeah. resistance to it was change. Different. It was different. People just yeah. don't like yeah. change all that much. I mean, no, yeah, for, yeah from. And they probably like the pattern of knowing like, yeah. every month, going yeah. to the mailbox, like, getting cool. Surfer Magazine, knowing what to expect, and they're going, wait, what's this? Yeah. For me, all of a sudden, at 25, 26, I heard this term graphic design, took a two-week workshop, and wow, that's a profession, that's something you could do for a living, and, and all my energy that I probably put more into surfing shifted to this thing called graphic design. And in looking back, I've often thought I was really lucky I didn't I could still be at that surf shop. <laughs> or or I would have been for some years probably still entering the oddball contest and kind of going through the motions or whatever, but I just I, didn't, I never really I never felt I had to deal with it. It just it all shifted and I just got wow. So a lot of that same energy and passion that I've been put into surfing for so many years that shifted over to graphic design. I still surf but but less and I still followed it and I can remember being a surfer and we were doing a thing on hot new boards for summer or something and looking down and saying, but that looks like a cool board and I still have it. It's a seven-foot, Elmeric, real rounded kind of egg thing and so I ended up getting it after the photo shoot. It was the first board I took to the Caribbean, you know, many years later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thinking, like, here's this diehard surfer who still has a fever for surfing, right? And you're in this graphic design world pursuing this graphic design profession. And every now and then, you know, these things intersect, this whole surfing graphic design thing intersect. And I think you were telling me at one point when this little place in Tortola that had this beautiful surf rate became available. And, well, tell me what happened about it. Well, I was, I was uh, kind of. Uh, at the, probably the busiest time in my uh, kind of globe trotting, giving lectures, talking to agencies, workshops, exhibitions all over the world. And uh, I had a friend who was down in the Virgin Islands in St. Thomas that said, Hey, you should come down here. And I really hadn't been surfing much <clears throat> at that time. And I said, Well, I could, I could use that. I'm 
getting kind of frazzled. That sounds great. So we went down there, went to St. Thomas, the Virgin Islands, and one day, as I got close to Christmas, like the day before, I said, well, let's sail over to Southern Island. There's a pretty good point over there that if you, know, if you ever get it, it's really good, because it's very pre-forecasting. Um, so. Right. so we sailed over, and I can remember still, like, just because I just come off some big trip and it was just like, being on a boat wasn't the coolest thing for me right then it was kind of not a nice trip over for me but but anyway basically the next day was Christmas day and I looked out and what was this point and it looked like that was a rideable little wave out there and, and uh, I ended up paddling out <coughs> with a Santa Claus hat on and covering this guy's board and just had a blast. It was two feet, maybe maybe three. Probably now about as small as it can be and still be rideable. It was really fun. I just had a blast out there by myself. And, you know, and kind of rediscovering it in a sense. And anyway, and I think I might have got another day or two. I can remember leaving the harbor and there's still really good waves coming through. And just thinking, where are we going? <laughs> I don't remember where we had to get out of there, but... Anyway, and so that was it. And came back to my life in New York studio and traveling all around, crazy stuff, and blah, blah, blah. And I get a, I had to be a letter probably at that point from this same guy saying, hey, remember that point we served? Of course I remember that. Well, there's a house for sale out there. No way. And uh, uh, it's pretty cash rich in those days. And long story short, I ended up buying that house sight unseen because I knew the location and I knew that wave. And, you know, yeah, the house is okay, fine, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I even, as I was closing the deal some months later, um, I had to, well, a couple of good stories. The way it works down there is I, I, I didn't know anything about buying a house. I never bought a house in my life. And finally, I out what they were asking and made what I thought was some kind of low, low ball offer or whatever. I didn't know. I sent it to them. And I never heard back from the local real estate agent. That would have probably just as good. I'm busy on the thing. House in the Caribbean, what's that? Anyway, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, at some point, I was up visiting my folks, and I remember saying to a girlfriend at the time, uh, whatever happened with that, that Tortola thing? That I, I never heard back from that. I, you know, I'll just give her a call, the agent. I called the agent, yeah, I just never heard back from my, from my offer, what's going on? And she goes, oh, you know, I've been meaning to call you. They accepted. <laughs> and I said, there you go. I think I just bought a house. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but as the deal was closing, it was funny, I was on my way to, I think, South America, Brazil, um, maybe Argentina, but anyway, and it, it was set up so that I could at least do a walkthrough before everything was final. And so I got my way to, to, the, to this bay where the house was, and it was late at night, and I was, I was in my New York garb, because it was just a quick stop, and then on to this other thing, and South America, and you know, sounds and smells, it was just the whole Caribbean kind of experience that I had not been spending any, any time with. I'd been, that's another story, the Caribbean once, but that was 20 years earlier. Um, out of high school, I went to Barbados for a couple months. But um, anyway, I remember walking from wherever I was staying, to say, well, I gotta at least walk out to that point and look at it again. I'd never been on land, I'd only been on a boat even. I got about halfway out to the point, and I just done. It just hit me that no, I got to do this. This is a no-brainer. I just turned around and walked back. No way. And got on the plane the next morning. And yeah, it was a done deal. 
Yeah. So yeah, I never never looked back. Never buyer's remorse, and you know, it was better than I could have even imagined in terms of the wave. And you know, a great thing, and, and kind of a nice. You know, I started out doing. I'd say from maybe let's say ten or eleven to twenty six. Pretty much nothing but surfing. That's pretty much all I did, and some way related. And um, and then by kind of a fluke of getting a postcard one day announcing a graphic design workshop when I was 26, I discovered this thing called graphic design. And for those first however many years, five, maybe ten, I, uh, I mean, did it uh, broke. I and mean, when I drove up to Circuit Magazine or shared a ride with somebody, we had to look for gas money, we had to look for lunch money, like old, old guy story. We didn't have to walk through the snow, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was that, you know, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. We were... It was just this thing of, of total passion and love that we were doing. Anyway, jumping way ahead, eventually this thing I discovered called graphic design, you know, it's an old cliche, if you work hard at something you really love, it'll eventually pay off. Well, at some point, it allowed me to buy this house on a perfect point in the Caribbean and get back to surfing. So it was this full circle, kind of nice, nice. Well, that's the connection, you know, this whole graphic design surfing thing, and that's kind of where we started. But yeah. the idea of, you know, you having this kind of lifestyle where you have the flexibility to go and serve, and now you're, that profession set up an uh, ideal, beautiful location for you to spend a lot of time in the winter doing what you love. Yeah, and there's no question that's, I've mentioned it before, I think in that uh, documentary you mentioned that it's definitely cost me a fair amount of jobs and work, and because it's surfing like down there? Hmm? surfing down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've blown off talks and then work as late as this last winter because there were waves. <laughs> Two that come to mind is even this last winter I had a well three actually I did a magazine. <laughs> <laughs> There was far too many swells that sounded like yeah, it was going yeah, on last yeah, yeah, and I can remember one time being at, at the airport in New York, and they had bought me a ticket to go somewhere in Asia and uh, to give a lecture. And, and uh, But I knew there was a swell coming, and I went ahead and bought a ticket to the Caribbean. And by some chance, it happened that I was there where my flight was going to Asia. I mean, this, this sounds fake now that I describe it, but I literally was going down the, the whatever corridor, and there was an arrow to the flight that went to, no way. <laughs> to Asia, and there was uh, uh, and one that pointing to the Caribbean. <laughs> and so, for that brief second, I could have gone and made all these people that were waiting for me and paid and, and you know advertised very happy, or I could have gone surfing. And made yourself happy. Because I mean, it's funny. The surfing is like it's almost a selfish sport. Oh, no question, it, it is. is. Uh, being, uh, being married myself is just like, you know, I feel it all the time. Like, Can I go surfing? Or like, I know I'm going, I know I make up my mind, but I'm going, yeah. but it's like, I have to put all these checks in places. Yeah. Do it. So yeah. I'm kidding. Oh, there's nothing quite like visualized, seeing the actual physical fork in the road, standing in the airport, yeah. watching the two <laughs> arrows pointing in the opposite really direction. That's not, in a, making your choice. And <laughs> not an exaggeration. Yeah. I had bought my ticket, they had bought the other ticket, and for some reason it came to the same 
<laughs> jumping off point in the airport, and it was, and I, I definitely considered it. Exactly. No, no, he paused for about a good five seconds. You know, yeah, really kind yeah. of thought about I that. This quite a bit, and I, I missed a, uh, a deal breaking uh, phone call this last winter because there were still waves. I thought I'm going to come in. <laughs> well, yes, I know it's one o'clock. I'm probably not going to. There's still waves. <laughs> By the time I got in, the guy was over and the job went away. That's the influence. That's the influence surfing has on people, that's for sure. Yeah, it's in some ways, and the curse isn't quite the right word, but it's, you know, it's, there's a, there's a cost, I guess. You know. but it's worth it. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, no questions. With it. Yeah, and I, you know the feeling, you know, it's been saying the last couple of days, in particular, I need to get the water. It's been too long, you know. Yeah. You just know, and I've always felt that when I'm old. As long as I can remember, it's, you know, okay, I need to go surfing. I need to get out in the water. And that's why when you know there's a swell and you know there's absolutely no way you can make it, you just don't even look. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I, I can't. I'd rather not know. <laughs> but of course, you know, surfers, like, when you get down there, wow, where were you? You're missing. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. thanks for that. No, thanks, thanks. Well, thank you, David. This is great. Appreciate you taking the time yeah, to come in and see us. Fun. Yeah.